This is an ABC podcast. Lots of fascinating things for you on this week's Health Report. Welcome from me, Norman Swan, coming to you from Gadigal Land. Today, how can you tell if a pandemic or a disease outbreak is natural or unnatural? It's a dilemma that we're increasingly going to confront. How do you get your internal vacuum cleaners revved up to slow down aging and reduce the risk of dementia? And fish oil supplements, also called omega-3 fatty acids, in pregnancy. Who should have them? Does it matter where the supplements come from? And what benefits can you expect? A leader in this field is Professor Maria Macridis at the South Australian Health and Medical Research Institute. There's been a long interest in omega-3 fatty acids in pregnancy as far back as the 80s where it was first shown that the Faroe Islanders had longer periods of gestation and babies with high birth weights to the genetically similar Danes. If you lived in the Faroe Islands eating seagulls and whatever else, <laughs> yes. you didn't have so many preterm births. That's correct. Not so many preterm births and you had a higher birth weight babies with longer gestations and fewer preeclampsias. Preeclampsia being a swollen ankle with protein in your urine, high blood pressure, it's quite a dangerous pregnancy situation. Yes. And so those initial observations led to a whole lot of randomised trials to see whether giving high-dose fish oil supplements to pregnant women could prevent prematurity. A lot of the early trials, the sorts of supplements that were available were relatively crude preparations that led to fishy burps and were quite unpleasant for women to take. Those trials showed promising results, but that didn't really go anywhere. Was there any biological reason why omega-3 fatty acids should make a difference to pregnancy? The sorts of prostaglandins that are used to... Chemical messengers. Chemical messengers to initiate labour are ones derived from the omega-6 fatty acids. So the hypothesis has always been that... The omega-3s oppose it. Oppose it and leave the myometrium in a more quiescent state. And are these all omega-3 fatty acids? Because they come in various forms. These are the longer chain marine ones. So icosapentaenoic acid and docosahexaenoic acid. And does it matter where they come from? Krill or any other fish? No. So whether they're actually from algal sources for the vegetarians or whether they're from the body oil of the fish, it doesn't really matter. You get the same effect. So it wasn't conclusively shown then in those initial uh, trials? Not in those initial trials. They were all very promising. But when we updated the Cochrane Review in 2018, much to... Cochrane Review meaning you brought together all the available evidence from all the trials. That's right. We actually found 70 trials that we were able to combine. And that Cochrane Review showed relatively conclusively from high quality studies that we could reduce the risk of early preterm birth by about 42% and the risk of preterm birth by about 12%, which was incredibly exciting. There were many trials going on at that time as well, including our own here in Australia, which included 5,500 women. The importance of these latter trials is that they are actually inclusive of the whole population regardless of risk. So all comers, you're pregnant, you get omega-3 fatty acid yeah. supplement. Exactly. And whether you're already taking prenatal supplements that may have some omega-3 in them. But it was a bit disappointing when you looked at the whole population. Indeed it was. So it's like giving folate to prevent spina bifida, you just give it to everybody. Exactly. Now you give omega-3 to everybody, it didn't work. No, not in the whole population. So what was going on? Our subgroup analysis showed that 
the benefit was only restricted to women who were entering pregnancy or in pregnancy had a low status. So in other words, when you analyse the data and actually separated the women into groups, you actually did see a benefit, but it was only in women who didn't have much omega-3 on board. That's exactly right. And that has since been also demonstrated in another US-based study, also supported by a Chinese study. That makes it complicated as an intervention because first, if you're going to do this, you've got to find women who are low in omega-3s. That's exactly right. So we were hugely encouraged by the National Pregnancy Care Guidelines that at the end of 2020 made the first evidence-based recommendation to supplement women who are low in omega-3. The question is, how do you find the women who are low in omega-3? And it's not enough to just ask them whether they eat fish or not. The best way to do that is with a blood test. And we have now started an evaluation of an implementation program how to put it into action in South Australia. How to put it into action and to see whether we can actually create a program that's embedded in the health system, both in general practice and in the interface with the hospital system, because that's how antenatal care is delivered, where women can be appropriately screened or tested for their omega-3 status with their other pregnancy screening tests. So you're piggybacking it when a woman's getting blood removed in pregnancy, you just adding on a test to that blood. Yes, exactly. It's part of the standard serum screening that happens at the end of the first trimester. Vitamin D testing is notoriously unreliable. Is omega-3 testing reliable? Yes, we've actually worked with the pathology services to make sure that we can actually meet all the appropriate accreditation. So how far down the track are you in terms of implementing this in South Australia? Well, we started about 12 months ago. At the moment, we're covering about 30% of the pregnancies in the state. So we've shown through our partnership with SA Pathology that it's actually feasible to do. What we need to do if we're going to emulate the results of the randomised trials is to try and have about 80% adoption. So the next challenge is to increase from 30% adoption to 80% adoption. And ultimately, we want to have an effectiveness evaluation. So are you preventing preterm birth? Are we preventing preterm birth in the community? And are we then saving families and the health system of those extra preterm births? What are the features of women who have low omega-3s? I mean, is there something else going on here? The features of women who have low omega-3 tend to be those who are less likely to take a perinatal supplement that's got some omega-3 in it. They tend to sometimes be from a more disadvantaged background and they tend to be a little younger. If somebody's listening to this and they think, well, what's the difference between eating fish and taking a supplement. Have people tried fish eating as an intervention? Actually, one of the randomised trials was a salmon intervention study. I mean, it does work. If you're low and you want to get to the level to be adequate, you probably need to be eating three decent-sized salmon meals every single week. So we are talking about a major change in one's diet. And not necessarily cheap either. And not cheap. And for women who are low, the most efficient way to actually restore their omega-3 levels is through a supplement. 
And what's the problem here with giving it to everybody? Because it's very complicated. You've got to add this test, you've got to reduce it. Surely if you give it to everybody, you'll still get that subgroup improving. There's probably a couple of reasons why not to do that. Firstly, if we tried to give all pregnant women that much DHA or EPA, there's probably not enough fish in the sea. So there is a sustainability issue. The second one is that for women who are replete or sufficient, they're already at low risk of prematurity. And if we superdose those women, there's some evidence that we may inadvertently also increase their risk. So we don't want to inadvertently do any harm either. Because of the bleeding risk, presumably. Partly, but also we may increase their risk of having a premature baby as well. Well, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Maria Macridis is Professor of Human Nutrition at the South Australian Health and Medical Research Institute in Adelaide. And you're listening to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. As research progresses into how and why we age, mysteries and misconceptions are being stripped away. There are several processes working together which control how fast or how slow we age, especially in our brains. One of these processes is called autophagy and will appeal to the more obsessional among us because it's about cleaning out the crap. And getting to the bottom of autophagy and whether manipulating it can affect human ageing is Dr Tim Sargent, who's also at the South Australian Health and Medical Research Institute. Cheers, thank you for having me. Tell us what autophagy is. Autophagy is your body's way of keeping itself clean. Autophagy takes unwanted and damaged molecules that accumulate in your body with ageing and it degrades them. It recycles them into building blocks that can be used to build new parts for your body or that can be used for nutrition. So in that way, autophagy is like your body's recycling plant. And throwing out the garbage. So this is when Mm. cells don't properly die and they hang around and they've just got to be cleared out? It's more than that. So that's definitely a part of a related process. But autophagy is about inside of your cells. So your tissue, like for example, your brain is made up of cells like neurons, and autophagy is about cleaning up the insides of the neurons themselves. So it's hoovering the inside of the house? Absolutely, yeah. And how's that related to ageing? Part of the reason you age is the accumulation of damaged molecules in the cells of your body. And these damaged molecules can build up, especially in the brain, and stop your brain from working properly. And this can lead to diseases that cause dementia. Autophagy is a process that prevents this from happening. We published a paper showing that autophagy works really hard all the time inside of human neurons. Nerve cells. Nerve cells to degrade tangles that cause Alzheimer's disease. What causes a failure of autophagy? We know there's a genetic component. We know that Alzheimer's disease, for example, is genetically linked to variation in genes that contribute to autophagy. We're actively researching lifestyle factors that could contribute to a decrease in autophagy. So we're looking at things like high-fat diet feeding and obesity, for example. But it's also widely known that exercise can increase autophagy, and we believe that's a part of why exercise is so beneficial as you age. In Alzheimer's disease, you get the accumulation of these two proteins, beta amyloid and tau. People argue that these are just side effects of Alzheimer's, not the cause, which is why the drugs aren't very effective, Mm. if they're effective at all. So you're arguing there's something sitting behind that in Alzheimer's disease. That's absolutely correct. These molecules, amyloid plaques and tau tangles that accumulate on the insides of neurons, accumulate because of a defect in clearance. 
amyloid plates are born because neurons no longer efficiently clear waste through this process called autophagy. So autophagy might be the core problem or one of the core problems. Yeah, that means that amyloid plaques are really the tombstones of dying neurons that couldn't manage their waste properly. So how do you then intervene apart from exercise? That's what we're trying to develop here at SAMRI. Autophagy is really promising in that it can slow biological aging and that it's modifiable, at least in experiments on animals and in, in cells in the lab. However, you might notice that you can't walk into a, your GP's office and ask for autophagy-related medicine. And we think that's because you can't measure it in humans easily. You can get a cholesterol drug, which has been developed because you can measure the effect on cholesterol. If you can't measure the effect on cholesterol, then there's no drug. Absolutely. So one of our visions is that in years' time, you can walk into your GP's office and get your cholesterol measured get your blood pressure measured, and also get your autophagy measured and have a conversation with your doctor about how to change your autophagy to reduce your risk of age-related disease. That's our goal. And what we're doing towards that goal is that we're developing technology where we can easily measure autophagy in humans. Which sounds complicated. I mean, cholesterol is a chemical in the blood, or sugar is a chemical, glucose is a chemical in the blood, and you pick it Mm -hmm. up and you have a test for a simple chemical. Is there a simple chemical attached to autophagy or have you got to measure the process? That's what makes it hard. Right now, we can measure the process in people. So I could take some of your blood and we could measure the process in your living blood and I could tell you how well your body recycles material. Now, that's not entirely suitable for the doctor's clinic because it's hard to do. So what we're doing now at SAMRI is we're trying to find biomarkers and a biomarker is a molecule you can measure easily to tell us how well autophagy is proceeding. So we're trying to come up with a simple test for autophagy in people. And that's step one, to be able to find then if I give you substance X, does it change autophagy? But until you've got the test, you wouldn't know. That's correct. We already have good indications from animal models and cell models from laboratories, but none of this has really been tested in humans yet. So that's what we aim to do. So what do we know, apart from exercise, influences autophagy to improve it? We know from research, again, in animals and on cells, that nutrient restriction, so now I'm talking about things like calorie restriction or intermittent fasting, in animals at least do increase autophagy. The same should hold for humans. We just don't know how long for. So we know that a mouse, for example, if you fast it for one day, its autophagy increases. But we don't know what that translates to in a human being. People are flogging already pro-autophagy drugs or supplements. Do they work? People are flogging a lot of these, and you can find them on the internet. I can tell you that none of these interventions or drugs have been backed up by hard science in humans, because currently... We're the only group that's really measuring the process of autophagy in human beings. There are a whole series of supplements that should work with ageing. When you give them to animals, the animals live longer. There's Veritrol, the diabetic drug, metformin, NAD, NMN, there's a whole list of them. Do any of them increase autophagy when you try them in the laboratory? We've focused more on a class of drugs called mTOR inhibitors. So mTOR is like your cell's environmental sensing platform, so it can sense nutrition And when you take away nutrition, you increase autophagy through nutrition's effect on mTOR. We know, and many other labs have shown this, that mTOR inhibitors like rapamycin, for example, can definitely increase autophagy. But they also have major side effects. They do. So rapamycin, for example, suppresses the immune system. Also, I'm not convinced we know everything about how drugs like rapamycin interact with age-related diseases in humans. I think that should be subject to rigorous research. 
So where we're left here is that if you want to improve your own autophagy, control your calories and get lots of exercise. Absolutely. I exercise because the research shows it increases autophagy and that's honestly the best thing we've got right now. Thank you very much. Thank you. And they're even trying to develop ways of imaging autophagy in action in the brain. Dr. Tim Sargent is head of lysosomal health in ageing at the South Australian Health and Medical Research Institute. One of the most acrimonious debates around the COVID-19 pandemic has been whether it was a natural spillover from an animal source, such as a bat, or an accidental release from a laboratory, such as the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where they'd been performing potentially dangerous genetic manipulations of coronaviruses, and they'd been doing it with overseas colleagues. In a new book called Dark Winter, Global expert in infectious disease, epidemiology and biosecurity, Professor Ryan McIntyre, warns that we've got to get better at identifying disease outbreaks as natural or unnatural, especially since new technologies may make unnatural, human-made pandemics far more likely. Rhino also argues that doctors and researchers may be too conflicted to be trusted and that intelligence and law enforcement services may have better tools and training to uncover the truth. Welcome back to the Health Report, Rhino. Thanks, Norman. One of the themes in the book is recognising unnatural from natural outbreaks. What are the features of what you call an unnatural one? And it's not necessarily sinister, but sometimes it is, and you've got examples in the book. But what are the features of something that's unnatural, therefore presumably human-made? So there are two main types of unnatural epidemic, and one is deliberate release or biological warfare, bioterrorism, and the other is an accidental release, like from a laboratory leak. And there's numerous examples of both throughout history and this common theme of inability to recognise an unnatural outbreak. especially hard if it's a highly contagious pathogen, because once it starts... It's hard to tell because it spreads easily and you really need forensic and intelligence type investigations to understand the origins of epidemics. Whereas if you're following the debate around COVID origins, you'd think the only answer was in phylogenetics or very basic epidemiology when there's actually a lot more information that's needed and also the standard of proof is different for scientists versus, say, law enforcement professionals. We'll come back to that in a second. But you do describe the kind of features that would raise alarm bells, particularly early on, that this might not be as it seems. It's easier to see red flags for a pathogen that's not highly contagious, because in that case, if it's a deliberate attack, for example, you might see multiple releases and it may look like it's very contagious, but actually it's not. On the other hand, for certain types of pathogens, if you see a particular clinical picture, so things like tularemia or anthrax, if you see inhalational or pneumonic forms of that infection, that's a pretty strong signal that it, it could be unnatural. Because it's, it's, not the, it's not the normal way that anthrax or tularemia would show themselves. That's right. Natural anthrax will normally present as a cutaneous lesion. So if you're seeing a large number of inhalational anthrax cases in, in the lungs, then you have to suspect that there is an unnatural cause. But as I explained in the book in the Soviet Union, there was a massive leak of weaponized anthrax from their bioweapons factory and huge numbers of inhalational anthrax and deaths. 
but they denied that it was unnatural and everybody agreed with them. Well, including the United States and the US yeah. allies. Yeah, not the intelligence people, by the way, just the health experts. Let's just describe a couple of these outbreaks. So there's the one at Sverdlovsk, which is the one you're talking about, which is the infamous anthrax outbreak. There's another one which was a series of salmonella outbreaks in the United States, which one lone American senator said this was deliberate and the Rajneesh and he was howled down. Yeah, that's a really interesting outbreak and it's one that I use in my teaching as well because unlike most of the other outbreaks that I talk about in the book, there wasn't any government involvement, there wasn't any lab leak, it wasn't like somebody's neck was on the line. In other words, yeah. there was no reason to be defensive. Yeah, and the truth is that cult... Um, well, wait, before you go on to the cult, just describe <laughs> the outbreak. Sure. So it was September in a city in the west coast of the US and all of a sudden people start getting gastro. People start getting very ill with gastro. It ends up being salmonella, which is a common cause of gastro outbreaks. But there were over 700 cases and at the time that was the largest ever outbreak of salmonella seen in the US. And it turned out that everyone who got sick had eaten out at a restaurant, except they'd eaten out at over 10 different restaurants a classic outbreak investigation was done and the public health authorities, which included the local health authorities and the CDC, determined that it was unsanitary food handlers that caused the outbreak in over 10 restaurants, despite the fact there was no common ingredient involved and the sanitation was actually okay when they inspected all the restaurants. So for them to come up with that conclusion flew in the face of the facts and then there was this politician Jim Weaver, who said, I think the Rajneeshis did it, and he was aggressively shouted down and called crazy, and he tried to go to the media, and he was ridiculed even more. And six months later, the cult leader, Sri Bhagwan Rajneesh, confessed that his cult had done this, and he wasn't even believed. So that's how hard it is to prove an unnatural outbreak when even a confession isn't believed. And then 12 months later, quite by accident, the FBI was doing an immigration raid on the Rajneesh's ranch and stumbled upon their lab. And it contained the exact outbreak strain of the salmonella that caused the outbreak, which was actually a very unusual strain, not one that had usually been seen. And then there was the outbreak, the 1977 Russian flu pandemic. That's an interesting one as well. So that was a pandemic of influenza, which was due to an H1N1 type virus. And there were questions at the time about unnatural origin because it had an unusual genetic signature for temperature sensitivity, which is usually something you see in engineered viruses, particularly when you're trying to make live attenuated flu vaccines. That's one of the ways to attenuate them so that they can't survive at higher temperatures. And so they're not as pathogenic. But that was also shouted down and the same old, same old animal theories, you know, already emerged from animals, already emerged from frozen corpses in the tundra, all kinds of theories, the same theories that we hear over and over again with these outbreaks. And that was a narrative for 30 years. And it's now accepted that that was a result of a lab leak, either from the Soviet Union or China, which were both doing research to develop live attenuated flu vaccines at the time. And they both did see cases around the same time, so it could have arisen from both. A recurrent statement in the book in many ways is that you don't trust doctors and medical researchers in outbreak studies. You trust law enforcement more and the military more. 
I do because the way they approach the question is actually the correct way because they're trained in intelligence gathering and investigation in a very different way that scientists are trained. So the standard of proof is different. The problem is that in medicine and in science, we're not trained to even ask the question, is it natural or unnatural? And we're not trained in how you go about ascertaining that. And really, you have to look at a broad scope of evidence. It's exactly how the police would investigate a homicide, for example. They would look at all the evidence. You'd have to look at all the available epidemiologic evidence, the genetic evidence. The and human behaviour. Yeah, the political and human landscape and what was going on, what the possible motives were. In the case of the Rajneeshis, it was that they wanted to control a local election. And they'd planned to poison everybody in the town so only their cult members would vote and they could control the local council and win on a particular land issue they were having conflict with. You know, to think about motives and investigate from that perspective, it's not a skill that we have as medical professionals, etc. But what you describe in the book is that the law enforcement officials who have a suspicion are often convinced by the doctors that they're wrong. Yeah, because when you're talking about biological threats, Law enforcement or intelligence agencies may have a couple of PhDs in immunology who work in there who give them advice, but they don't have the kind of expertise that is in a CDC or a health department or or a major research institution. So they do have to turn to scientific experts for advice. And therein lies the biggest problem, because when it comes to unnatural outbreaks, particularly lab leaks, there is obviously a vested interest in the people who would know the most in denying the possibility of lab leaks. So you're implying the conflict of interest is if they find this, it couldn't possibly be a lab leak, we've got great security in our lab, but if it was, it would threaten our research because we run labs like that. Is that what's going on here? That's right. And I give numerous cases of insider threat of scientists who were investigated for actual nefarious conduct. And it was so interesting that the medical research community just closed ranks and defended those people. And There's real polarisation in the view of those incidents between law enforcement and medical researchers, and somehow that has to be bridged because they're completely different viewpoints. I think the issue is that every scientist thinks, oh, that there but for the grace of God go I. And when they see someone being scrutinised and taken to task for breaching standard protocols, etc., it sends a shiver down everyone's spine. But it's got to, we've got to get it right because, as you and others have said, we are living in an acute period of pandemic potential. Even if you take the animal spillovers, we're encroaching on natural environments, we're exposed to animals that we wouldn't have necess- and viruses we wouldn't necessarily have been exposed to. There's just recent evidence this week about bats under stress responding in different ways in terms of their microbiome and so on. And there's CRISPR, which is a gene editing technology that you could have somebody from ISIS sitting in a lab somewhere producing a variant of smallpox. And you talk about smallpox a lot in the book. How do we bring this together to get a more rational view of this incredibly risky world that we live in? My view is that the community needs to have a voice at the table. The community needs to be informed The community needs to understand in the same way that they understand about climate change and cybersecurity through personal experiences, through observing what's going on around them. You know, we've seen the power of the people in terms of achieving change and driving political change, for example, with climate change. 
And I think that's the only only way that we can mitigate this risk. It is an existential risk to humanity, the kind of technology that's available today and the lack of appropriate governance frameworks globally to manage that risk. And I think solutions will come from the community. I don't believe it'll come from scientists. And one of the things you talk about, just coming talking about CRISPR and engineering viruses, is that once upon a time you could tell the age of a virus from how it evolved, at least in the beginning. Now with engineered viruses, they can be made to look old in a sense. It's not that they're made to look old. It's that we get what we call gain-of-function research, which is where you take a virus from nature and you make it unnatural, you confer on it unnatural properties, enhance its transmissibility, enhance how dangerous it is, etc., by passing it over and over again through an animal species. And we have humanised mice. Those are mice that have the same receptors as human beings do in their respiratory tract. So when you can't experiment on human beings with dangerous viruses, you can do it in humanised mice. We have ferrets that are also a good model for humans for some viruses like influenza. So you passage these viruses over and over and over again in a ferret or a humanised mouse and you basically make it evolve and adapt to that species, which is in this case is a humanised species. So you're adapting it for transmissibility in humans and then the resultant virus looks like it's natural because it hasn't had bits cut out of it and inserted into it. It's like evolution speeded up millions of times its natural speed in a laboratory. When you do that, the resultant virus, when you analyse it on a phylogenetic tree, looks like it's been around for years. And when you see scientists saying, oh, you know, we've just discovered this brand new version of the Omicron virus, for example, this is a hypothetical example, and it looks like it's been around for three years must have been hiding in an animal or frozen or you know that's a red flag that this is a result of gain of function research so when you see that that's a highly contagious virus mysteriously suddenly appears but it supposedly has been around for years and years well you would have noticed it if it was highly contagious and had been around for years and years so those are the sort of new ways that say intelligence agencies need to think about origins of viruses but sometimes they won't have much time to do it in an acute situation. Well, you, you, in an acute situation, you need a public health response to control the situation. So you test, know, trace, quarantine, isolation. Yeah, yeah. The investigation can happen simultaneously and you may not get to the answer straight away. And even if you do get to the answer, it may be suppressed. And I think we've seen that with COVID, with the US intelligence agencies and others, for example, not agreeing and then, you know, initially in fe by February 2020 saying that it was definitely a natural outbreak. Now, how could anybody possibly know that in February 2020? So they started um, off being sceptical that it was a natural outbreak and then changed their minds. Well, a I, th I think later. there were political dimensions to it because a lot of the research that happened in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which was, you know, a major coronavirus laboratory right near the markets where this outbreak was first detected, there were collaborators from the US. There was funding from the US, funding for the EcoHealth Alliance, which was then funding these projects there. So I think because there was funding of a lot of this research from the US, that was the political dimension. And so you believe that we've ignored the signs that COVID-19 could have been an unnatural outbreak? 
I think there's been a narrative out there and counter-narratives. It's interesting, you know, you sort of watch the literature and every time there's some bit of research that supports an unnatural outbreak, then there's a flurry of papers, often with no real new knowledge, supporting a natural origin and these tend to get front page New York Times stories. When, of course, we don't know for sure. And anyone who tries to present uncertainty as certainty, you've got a question. The book's called The Dark Winter, but you talk about the biological winter. If you take, if you like, a dark view of the future, what does the biological winter look like? It's where we never get the governance of this technology right. And so the rights of scientists take precedence over the rights of the community and quite dangerous research, both official and unofficial, goes on. And, you know, I talk about do-it-yourself biology and some of the kind of crazy stuff we're seeing on the do-it-yourself science scene. Including in Australia. Yeah, and people injecting themselves with CRISPR-Cas9 live-streamed, etc. So this technology has, you know, the cost has decreased dramatically, exponentially, and the accessibility is so easy and the methods are open sourced. You know, people publish the methods in scientific journals that anyone can look at and reproduce. The technology is just so accessible now. So I think we could be living in a world where these viruses and pathogens keep emerging, many of them man-made, that are coming at too fast a rate for us to keep up and develop drugs, vaccines, etc., which is quite a scary prospect. Is the genie already out of the bottle or is there a way of controlling this? Yeah, I think there is a way of mitigating the risk for sure. But it really needs those two communities in intelligence and law enforcement and science and medicine to come together and find some kind of common ground and way of moving forward in the interests of humanity. And I think it needs the community to have a voice at the table. And that doesn't mean having a consumer rep on an ethics committee. Even the way we do medical ethics is not fit for purpose for the threats we're facing. Much of the research I'm talking about happens in animals. So that would go to an animals ethics committee, which doesn't consider harm to human beings. So if there's a lab leak and someone in another country dies because of contagion, that person never consented to that research, was never informed about that research. It really does open a whole other category of ethical consideration. So you're hoping that the book will mobilise? Yeah, I'm hoping people in the community, you know, it's written for lay people, it's written in simple terms to convey what the threats are that we face, showing historical examples to show it's not just crazy conspiracy theory, this is very real in the hope that people can empower themselves with knowledge and have a voice in how we regulate and manage the risks. Because you know, a lot of this technology is essential medical technology and we need the technology, but there are substantial risks associated with it as well. At the moment, we're just looking at the good side and completely ignoring the risks. The book's called Dark Winter. You should read it. It's by Rhina McIntyre, who's Professor of Global Biosecurity at the Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales, and it's published by New South, which is part of the University of New South Wales publishing enterprise. Rhina, thanks as always. Thanks so much, Norman. And before I go, a few days ago, one of the Health Report's most faithful listeners died and has left a huge gap behind him. Dr Mark Henschke was one of Australia's pioneering rural GPs, who led by example. He practiced in northern New South Wales, taught generations of young doctors, 
and as a GP obstetrician, delivered scores of babies over many decades. Mark Henschke showed that being a country doctor gave you freedom to practice family medicine at its best. He died following catastrophic injuries after being run over while riding his bike. Our thoughts are with his family, colleagues, and the many rural communities he served. I'm Norman Swan. I'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.